Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan, and welcome back to another discussion of Epic versus Apple. Where we left off in our an antitrust Epic playlist was covering and completely caught up with day three. And of course, the lawsuit that has been filed as a prospective class action against Sony on a very similar theory to the one that Epic is bringing against Apple. That all being said, now we're going to talk about day four. Now, unlike some of the other days in the trial, not a lot of really interesting financial information or trade secrets from various companies actually leaked out before the trial date yesterday morning. So we're not going to go over some of the other websites that we've looked at to kind of itemize some of those leaks. There is one exception, however, and that was identified by Tom Warren at The Verge, and he says as follows. Tim Sweeney getting angry at Apple in 2018 over Fortnite not being the number one result in the App Store, or as he said in this email to a redacted recipient, as an iOS user, I just set up a new iPhone and installed the 12 apps I commonly use. None were the first search result when searching the App Store for the app's exact name. In fact, Dropbox wasn't even visible on the first page. Google bought the top search result and Apple put its files app ahead of Dropbox in line for the search, quote unquote, Dropbox. As a developer, it's super frustrating that Fortnite is not the first search result when customers search for the text Fortnite. That's why we spelled it wrong. Come on. Some days Microsoft buys the search results. Other days, it's another competitor. I can only imagine how an indie developer must feel when they're trying to make a living and the $900 billion company that runs the app store sells their search results to a $730 billion company. This is an awful practice and should stop. And in all honesty, I agree with Tim here. Search bar results in the app store that are bought and paid for as advertisements, they don't feel good. They don't help the customer get to exactly where they want to go any quicker than if you had just had a direct response to the text typed into the box. But whether or not that's illegal is somewhat of an open question. Now, there are places that think that it is, and in fact, probably helped inform Tim Sweeney and Epic in bringing this case. As we've talked about earlier in this series, there was a report done by the House in the United States that talks about antitrust concerns. One of those concerns here on page 360 of 450, never let it be said the government can't put out paper, despite the fact that Apple's pre-installed apps do not have ratings or reviews, factors that Apple says are most influential in determining app ranking, many of Apple's pre-installed apps still tend to be ranked first, even when users search for exact titles of other apps. For example, Apple Books has no reviews or rankings and appears first in a search for books, while competing apps have tens of thousands of customer rankings and ratings of 4.8 or 4.9 stars. And a search by a subcommittee staff of terms music, news, TV, and podcast returned Apple Music, news, TV, and podcast as top-ranked search results, although those apps do not have any reviews or rankings. Despite the lack of reviews or rankings, Apple told the Wall Street Journal that the number one position for books in a book search is reasonable since it is an exact name match. Okay, but as this subcommittee found, that might in and of itself be a problem. It appears that Apple does not apply the same rule to third-party apps. Documents reviewed by subcommittee staff show that Apple previously punished non-Apple apps that attempted to quote-unquote cheat the App Store rankings. Apple determined that at least one third-party app had achieved its high search ranking because its name was a generic name that was also a common search term. Apple's employees determined it was cheating to give an app the name of a common search term. And so 
When we talk about Epic versus Apple, and I talk about the legalities of whether or not Apple is engaged in shrin antitrust infractions for what Epic is accusing it of, for mandating in-app payment processing, for mandating that only the App Store can be the App Store on iOS, that does not mean that I sit here and say that Apple is without fault. There are a lot of things that I think that Apple does that are rightly complained about by the Tim Sweeney's of the world. Bare minimum regardless of whether this house finding were actually to be found illegal by the courts who would make this final determination, it does look, let's use a legal term here, icky. It doesn't make you feel good about the process. And it certainly doesn't make you feel good if you've got a vested interest in making sure your app can be found on the iOS. I understand how somebody like Tim Sweeney gets frustrated by these kinds of things. You search for Fortnite, Fortnite should come up first. Now, maybe you could mandate by regulation or something that the direct tax match comes up first and then you can sell ads. I don't know what that would look like, but certainly Apple is not without fault and brought at least part of the animosity and the antagonism. And certainly folks coming into my comments and telling me that I don't care about the legalities, I just hate Apple. I understand that. I understand that you can look at Apple and say it's frustrating developers in very specific ways. Whether or not that is illegal is a separate question. Also, we've looked at uh, a lot of articles from The Verge. They've done a great job of summarizing each day of the trial. This one is about day three. Epic versus Apple turns into Windows versus Xbox. We, in my opinion, have done a pretty good job summarizing what has been shown from day three in the trial. But I did want to highlight one of the things that I had said in my earlier videos that The Verge had put out here, and I think they're correct in this analysis. Apple pushed right to lay out in detail just how much more locked down Xbox is than Windows asking whether it did things like support rival game stores or streaming services, which of course they don't. Epic's opening statement questioned why Apple needed to lock down the iPhone when it has already created a perfectly workable but more open system in the Mac. But with Wright and Microsoft, Apple has a perfect comparison point, a major computing company that offers two very different versions of a big black box. And I think, at least based on some of the comments that I'd gotten to my videos, that this point was lost uh, either in my description, which of course is my fault, or just in translation coming across YouTube and through uh, video formatting. So I do think it's important to note that this entire line of questioning about the fact that Microsoft maintains essentially two different business models with respect to Windows and with respect to their Xbox console is an important philosophical point for Apple to say, look, these devices can be treated differently in terms of business model, and that doesn't make one or the other right or wrong. Now, interestingly, since we're talking about who's a competitor of who, that could run in Epic's favor depending on the judge's inclination. And as you can probably tell, even here on what is going to be a summary of day four, there is so much gray area and so much muddy middle that that is exactly the reason why at the very top of this video series, I said you cannot predict the results of an antitrust lawsuit. And that's not great. You know, as someone that's a believer in the law and a believer in a law that you should be able to abide by or not and get punished if you don't, antitrust law is one of those areas that I don't love because Apple might be operating correctly. Apple might not be operating correctly. They might not have been operating correctly for a dozen years or more now, only they would only find out that they were operating illegally when a judge, or in this case, almost certainly multiple judges determined that to be the fact of the matter well after they made the decisions they did with respect to their business model. And I don't love that for future action, right? I don't love that for the next company that wants to try something novel, that wants to build something up and might be doing bad things. But I do like that 
clarity in the law. And honestly, that's how the law should operate if it's perfectly done. Antitrust has problems because business is constantly changing. I get that. But it does create these weird situations where somebody comes up to me and people have done it throughout this last nine months and said, who's going to win? And I say, well, I think Apple has the stronger case historically, but I can't tell you that the judges now don't see a sea change on the horizon and decide that something that historically has been okay is now no longer okay for reasons that hopefully the judges would articulate fairly well in their opinions. With that as our background, let's dive into day four. Again, hosted here and many, many, many thanks to The Verge and the other journalists that are doing this for us again by Addie Robertson, who is a journalist at The Verge who has been live tweeting this every single day. I should send her a fruit basket. I very much appreciate it. And certainly, as we've said in prior videos here, this is like two or three steps removed in terms of a game of telephone right? This is a phone call that may or may not have great sound that Addie, Ms. Robertson here is deciding what is important enough to live tweet. And then it's my interpretations of that live tweet. And so you do have this kind of attenuated circumstance already. Day four of Epic versus Apple starts in five minutes. Expecting testimony from Epic Business Strategy Exec Thomas Coe, then Apple App Store VP Matthew Fisher, and Marketing Director Tristan Kaminska. My wrap-ups from day three below, that's the article that we just took a look at. And I've got, I don't know, two dozen things to talk about from this day's testimony. So let's get started. First, we're talking with, I believe it's Mr. Coe to start out with, right? Thomas Coe over at Epic Business Strategy. They're talking about Epic's payment solution, which is available on PC and Android. Makes the solution available to developers on Epic Game Store for in-app purchases, but doesn't require them to use it. And this is one of those interesting points, and we're going to get back to this in another line of questioning in this summary of yesterday's testimony, that really makes it clear to me that Epic Game Store and Project Liberty and all these various things that Epic had put into place to have this fight were very specifically calculated in order to try to establish certain facts about what could survive, what could be sustainable in the marketplace for the distribution of apps, right? They built Epic Game Store to allow separate payment solutions to require you to not have to use their payment solutions and to do other things that we will talk about in order to establish that it could be done. And a lot of you came up to me and asked, hey, why is anybody making a big deal about the fact that the Epic Game Store hasn't made money yet and they're investing in it right now? And I say, well, Apple's making a big deal out of it because they want to try to establish that 30% of a cut isn't ridiculous and that Epic Game Store coming out here with a 12% cut and all this other stuff, hey, we don't require our payment solutions, et cetera, is not a workable solution. So Apple is coming in various waves and in various documents and saying, you don't make money with your store. You haven't proved it's commercially viable. It's all subsidized by Fortnite money. You've got security flaws. You don't have the features that we have on our iPhone. You don't even have the features that Steam has for their 30% and is trying to establish this as a bit of a Trojan horse, that it's a trap, that they're trying to put forward something that only lasts a couple years at present and say, well, anybody can do it at 12% and, and using these various things and payment solutions don't have to be mandated. Judge, it can be done. They are acting as monopolists because look at us. But that might be a little bit more compelling from a third party that isn't directly in charge of trying to establish this fact with their own store and investing their money so much so that they are in fact losing money for a number of years to try to set this up. And that, like I said, is going to come up in a number of places. Continuing with the testimony here, has the payment solution ever been available on iOS? Yes, Co says. When? During Project Liberty. 
From your perspective, what was the purpose of Project Liberty? Project Liberty is an attempt to provide developers choices for payment solutions and bring that benefit to customers in a platform where that choice is not available. Now, let's talk about this because I think this is a pretty big misstep on the part of Epic and maybe the coaching of Epic's witnesses. This is volunteered by Epic personnel. When was this payment solution available? During Project Liberty. And it's that name that I think gets them into a little bit of trouble because if you aren't already on their side, Project Liberty sounds like haughty arrogance, right? We are talking about a business dispute. We're talking about an argument between companies about whether or not the app store should be open, about whether or not Epic should have to pay 30% of its revenues on Fortnite to get access to the iOS ecosystem and the Apple audience. We are not talking about slavery. We're not talking about civil rights. We're not talking about issues of national importance. So you put this title on it, and I would say, if I were coaching Epic and I were looking at their witnesses, don't volunteer that. If Apple's smart, they will ask you as counter, as cross-examination, and you referred to this plan as Project Liberty, right? You want to get that out there because it makes them look like they are self-righteous. And when they describe it as an attempt to provide developers choices for payment solutions, it's easy enough for Apple to go, and this is from their opening slides, look at Project Liberty and point out all the many things that it does as a war against mobile platform fees, right? Epic has always been one of the major beneficiaries of cutting off the closed walled garden ecosystem of Apple and throwing open the gates because Epic has a lot of money. They're clearly willing to throw it around and they would like to benefit from it. Yes, Certainly, some other boats will rise with that tide if the gates are thrown open, but Epic's constant refrain of we're doing this for developers, we're not asking for damages and all this stuff, rings hollow to basically everyone, including the judge. If you go and you look at the preliminary injunction document, they say, in short, Epic Games cannot simply exclaim monopoly to rewrite agreements giving itself unilateral benefit. Its other identified bases, damage to its reputation in the Fortnite gaming community, cannot constitute irreparable harm, where such harm flows from Epic Games' own actions and its strategic decision to breach its agreements with Apple. While consumers are feeling the impact of this litigation, the fact remains, these are business disputes. A putative class action on behalf of all developers on these exact same issues was already in progress when Epic Games breached the agreements. Yet Epic Games has never adequately explained its rush other than its disdain for the situation. The current predicament is of its own making. That's the judge. That's not a random third party. That's not a journalist talking about these issues. And so if you go out there and you voluntarily offer that this whole thing is Project Liberty, freedom for developers, I just can't help but think that it doesn't ring terribly well for your side. Did you know that as part of Project Liberty, Epic would be involved in deceiving Apple in some way? Lawyer asks. We were supplying payment solutions, says Co. Lawyer pushes, asks if he knew it would be put on the Apple platform without Apple's permission. I knew my payment solutions would be used on Project Liberty and how the communications went on were beyond my responsibility. Says Co's lawyer asked one more time, I wasn't aware of it, Co says. And this is a good answer, right? This is a pretty strong answer uh, for Epic. It's not Mr. Co's responsibility here to know exactly what they're going to do with the payment solutions that he is putting forth. We don't know exactly what meetings he was sitting in. And this is the kind of answer that you absolutely would have a witness give. You cannot testify to information that you don't know. And one of the very first things you tell a witness is don't speculate. Don't, don't help them out, right? 
We can object to certain speculations. We can do those kinds of things, but just don't start there. And so if you don't know the answer, look, hey, I was building this payment solution. You're asking me if I thought it was duplicitous. It really depends on what our company wound up telling Apple beforehand, and I wasn't in charge of that. And that's a pretty good honor answer. Whether you agree with it, whether you believe it or not, is a matter for the court to decide. It's constantly evaluating the truth value of what these statements are. Continuing, lawyer notes in 2019 that co-said Apple and Google had excellent, lawyer claims the only, full service solutions for payment processing. Co concurs. Lawyer points to a message where Co wrote that there was really no truly comprehensive payment solution that does everything needed for a game company. This was around the time Co was working on Epic's payment solution. And you can take this in one of two ways, right? That Apple and Google are doing something worthy of value that Epic should have to pay for in addition to what might be security features. We'll obviously talk about that in today's testimony and or the audience that Apple has, those billion users of Apple devices. Or you can say Epic looked at this and said, Apple has maybe the only solution, but we can make one better and we're actually going to try to do that. And that's competition and judge, they don't allow this competition, so you should break it open for us. You can see what Epic is trying to do here. And of course, this is the part of the case that is Epic's. This is Epic making its case. We haven't even gotten to the half of the trial where Apple is defending itself. You've seen certain cross-examination and defenses that Apple is bringing. But one of the things that people might be lost on is Apple is going to do its own thing and really drive the bus towards the second half of this trial. That hasn't happened yet. This is still Epic trying to set the bricks in place, the foundation of their case, so that they can win as the plaintiff. Has Epic ever had issues with improperly collecting or using customer personal information in the past? I don't believe so, Co says. And have they ever had issues with collecting or improperly using info from children under 13? The, the COPPA principle that we've talked about extensively here in virtual legality, especially with respect to YouTube. I don't recall. Now, those answers are, I don't believe so. I don't recall. Again, good answers for a witness. If you don't have exact information, do not, do not volunteer stuff that you don't exactly know. And then some interesting stuff. The courtroom is now being sealed to talk about the issue. So unfortunately, we're not going to get an answer. It looks like it shouldn't take too long, judge says. So whatever is here, the court is concerned about it being prejudicial, not properly evidenced, not wanting it to go public. Uh, and certainly we don't get a great answer here, but it certainly presents an interesting point. In fact, it also presents a good time to talk about the fact that there's a lot of these. There's a lot of sidebars. There's a lot of information the judge gets. There's a lot of information that's redacted or sealed that we don't get that might play a significant part in the opinion that the judge ultimately gives on this case. So not only are we two steps removed, not only should you be looking at multiple sources and not just virtual legality, but we are never out here in the public going to get a full 100% granularly detailed view of what the judge is evaluating in making the call in this case. Now, Mr. Coe is done and Epic is calling Matt Fisher, VP of the App Store and our first Apple executive. Hence the thumbnail, you see his picture there. Apple's first grilling. And this is a fairly long bit of testimony that Matt Fisher winds up giving. He's the vice president of the App Store, our first Apple executive, and things get a little feisty. A different message notes an epidemic of fraudulent apps in the App Store. Epic overall has been arguing that the App Store review process is extremely shallow. It's being issued for the fact that it was said, so it's not necessarily true. Let's get back to evidence here, right? So you can present a document for a number of different purposes. Um, one of which, of course, is that it's accurate. It's true. But 
if you've got a speaker and you can't cross-examine them, that presents evidentiary issues. This is, you get into hearsay type things uh, and you don't want to get there. So you have to say, well, this isn't being presented because what is said here, that there's an epidemic of fraudulent apps in the app store is accurate, is true. It's being presented because we want to question this witness about it. And this email went to him and we want to get his reaction on the accuracy. Now the judge says it's skeptical of why Epic wants to submit something that's not necessarily true as evidence that's going to go online and is going to be evaluated by everybody out here in the world. Epic says it wants to establish state of mind, that there was an impression that a fraud epidemic existed and Apple was aware of it. So claim appears to be from a third party to Apple. And this is dicey, right? That third party isn't on the, isn't on the stand. The third party isn't even identified for purposes of us, the, the, the reporters, the analysts, and the commentators here. And you're going to present it out into the world. One of the things you'll later see, or it might not be a part of what I've highlighted here, is the judge says, you know, I'm really not sure, Epic, about putting that kind of document up there because non-lawyers aren't going to be able to evaluate when something is made a part of evidence for whether it's accurate or not. Uh, and so we really have to think about the process here. Obviously, judge, having been burned by a lot of the documents that have been in that file folder, even over the course of the first few days of this trial, is... Uh, over it with respect to some of the uh, documentation issues, the motions for redactions and seal, uh, and it's getting a little out of hand in terms of public participation uh, in this trial. So Epic wants to present it for this purpose. It's not necessarily wrong uh, for a legal uh, kind of question. They do wind up presenting it. I don't know whether it went up in the evidence uh, block. And then later on, when Apple is cross-examining their own executive here, he says, no, no, that's completely inaccurate. And one of the things I did after I got that email is was I talked to the uh, giver of that email and said, no, no, that's wrong. Uh, and so there is no truthfulness there. But Epic wants it submitted, not just to establish state of mind, but also, you know, hint that maybe there was an epidemic of fraud. Can't really blame their lawyers for trying there. Did there come a time when the App Store began to provide the ability to buy search advertising. There was a time when Apple gave developers the ability to purchase advertising within the App Store. Yes, Fisher says. Lawyer describing this. Broadly speaking, these kinds of services let people buy paid search results for specific queries. This can result in, say, competitor Y buying an ad that lets it top the search results when consumers search for original AppX. And indeed, that does happen. One of the interactions I had with Mr. Sweeney at Epic early on in this saga was pointing out that Unreal, his subsidiary, or at least his brand, the Unreal Engine, was buying Google search results for searches of Unity Engine. I said, well, look, you know, you know, this is legal. You know, you can do this. You're complaining about it. And he says, well, I have to, essentially. I have to in order to compete with the market. I don't necessarily disagree with that answer. And I certainly don't think it's something that we as consumers have to like. It doesn't help our process of trying to find something. But again, as we said at the top, whether or not it's illegal is something that a lot of people are debating right now. Continuing with the testimony, are you aware of a case where someone has left Apple and gone to Android because there was an increase in the cost slash price of an app or in-app purchase? No, Fisher says. And has anybody at Apple studied whether this is true? I'm not aware of a study like that. No. And this is important, right? One of the ways in which you try to establish a monopoly is this notion that the monopolist can change the price of their products to basically whatever. And because of other outside forces, their monopoly power, which is just inherent, there's no other competitors at all, stickiness, you might see referred to, general friction in moving between brands, that they become a monopolist even without 100% an elimination of competition power. So one of the things that they're trying to establish at Epic's side is 
People are just stuck in the Apple ecosystem that you had a plan from the start of this thing to build a model that would come in and trap people in that Apple ecosystem. And so you have questions like this one that say, are you aware of anybody having a raised price on Apple and going somewhere else because the prices are too high? And you say, no, I don't. I don't. We haven't studied it. In fact, if we had studied it, it would be bad because we'd have to present it to you. And so you can obviously see why Apple and various other companies probably don't study these things because you don't want it to come out uh, in discovery. And so you've got this situation where Epic says, well, if you don't have that, maybe, maybe we're talking about a situation where you're a monopolist. This was in deposition, Ms. Robertson makes clear. Also, you're not aware of how much money the average consumer spends on apps over the life cycle of a phone? No. Epic has been very critical of the alleged fact that Apple hasn't run more analysis of user behavior. And yeah, Epic would love that information. They want those studies. They want to know what Apple thinks about this because they're looking for a smoking gun and Apple didn't produce any studies on this issue. And I imagine that that is frustrating for Epic. And to some extent, as you can tell from the use of the word alleged in this tweet from Ms. Robertson, there are notions that it's not very believable that Apple has never looked at how much somebody spends over the life cycle of a phone, isn't concerned with how many apps people buy and whether or not cost changes the infrastructure of their market. Hmm, maybe not formal studies, but it's a bit surprising that they can't answer these a little bit more fulsomely. And you get into a situation where, you know, Epic's having an okay day in terms of the testimony. We try to talk about who's winning and on what terms, and Epic is doing some good work making inroads on Apple saying, well, you know, you sell your search results. Uh, I can point to an antitrust uh, discussion at the house that says you advantage your own stuff over competitors. That looks pretty anti-competitive. That looks like a pretty big antitrust problem for a monopolist provider of access. Uh, you don't study any of these things. People don't move if you change prices. I don't know, Apple. You're starting to look a little bit dicey. Epic's doing a good job. And then, of course, we get to the next tweet. Epic is not having a great day with the judge so far. Now, there are a couple of things going on here. This tweet actually appears to be directed, and of course, we're trying to figure out what it is by context of an overall Twitter thread, at the fact that Epic keeps trying to present documents and is dealing with redactions and seals and things, and the judge is just really not pleased with how at least the parties, if we're being generous, but seemingly more Epic, is dealing with presenting documents, asking questions on documents, whether or not they're presented properly to the court, etc., etc. So combined with some of, I think, latent uh, self-righteousness and discussions of that that the judge probably already has in her mind on these kinds of things, I don't think she's loving some of the things that's happening in her courtroom right now, uh, especially with Epic. I don't anticipate that that won't also be the case when Apple presents its side of the case and documents and everything else. So I, I don't really think this is anti-Epic bias so much as Epic is the one responsible for driving the truck right now uh, and the judge is not too terribly thrilled with how Epic is driving it. Doesn't make the testimony a uh, problem. Epic, I do think, is making some inroads, but certainly they got to watch themselves Got to watch yourselves when you're on a bench trial. You got to try to play to your audience and talk about things uh, with the judge herself. Then you have the next tweet. Epic's lawyer is making a veiled accusation that the judge is holding Epic to a double standard and letting Apple get away with similar document submissions. You got to be very careful. If you're going to accuse the judge of being biased, that can double back on you really hard. Uh, so you got to be very careful if you're Epic, just like we talked about Apple having to get a little bit less arrogant, at least as described in prior days of the testimony here. A lot of interesting dynamics just happening with respect to the strategy, 
right? Two opposing forces trying to convince a third party of something and whether or not it makes sense to be genteel, whether or not it makes sense to be arrogant or assholishness, if you want to phrase it that way, is part of trial litigation strategy. And you don't know really who's doing better on this, on a score like this, uh, until the opinion is in. Continuing with the testimony, we're back, admitting more evidence, a reference to a developer saying that search of the app store is really rough around the edges, part of a developer feedback survey. Also, the app store is plagued with outdated, low-quality apps. It's time Apple raised the bar again. And then this continues. This is Epic presenting this. A developer is leveling accusations of staff playing favorites, asking to start applying the same rules to all apps, start eliminating the junk apps. You only seem to focus on apps that spend and earn the most money, says one dev. There are lots of apps that don't get attention because they focus on paying staff and doing other things besides monetization and marketing as a developer. It's a nightmare. Another dev calls the review process extremely disruptive. Sites apps getting rejected for no reason. The app reviewers are sometimes arbitrary and unpredictable. The app reviewers are not consistent among competing apps. Apple is given into payola, etc. And this is a good line of attack again. Epic is doing well here. You're trying to establish if you're Epic that Apple's 30% is too high because they aren't doing anything to really bolster security. They aren't doing anything to earn that 30%. And what they are doing is relatively hated by the people they're ostensibly doing it for. Now, there's a couple of problems with even that formulation, which is Apple can say, well, look, we're doing this for our customers, the people that buy iPhones, potentially buy your apps. We are not doing it for you, who is a business partner. And certainly you can be upset with some of the rules that we impose and you can be upset with some of the ways that we impose them, but we don't actually have to treat everybody the same. We don't actually have to be perfect. One of the Real factors here is that Epic is making this attack because there are angry developers and a lot of people that aren't happy with Apple. Apple can, and they did in their opening statements, go back and say, look, we've gone in the course of a decade from 500 apps to however many millions or billions of apps. So at some level, just in terms of marketplace, we are being successful in what we are doing. We are attractive to the consumers that buy our Apple brand iPhones and iPads, and we are attractive to the developers that keep making apps to go into that marketplace. And yes, in any given business scenario, you can find a lot of folks that are unhappy. You go to a virtual legality YouTube episode, for instance, we have a very high upvote rate, and I'm very proud of that. But in any given video, with the rare exception of a few, there's going to be some downvotes. There's no problem with that. Some people are just not going to like the product that I created. But if you get up to 98% positive and you got 2% negative, I'm pretty much okay with that. Now you extrapolate that out to millions upon millions of apps and developers, and it's pretty easy to get a listing of folks that are in that downvote range, that are looking at it and saying, I'm unhappy with you. And I'm not saying you have to be happy. As I've said earlier in this series, I had my own kind of difficulties a little bit with the app store, just in terms of wording and things that didn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, and we made it right. And we figured out exactly what they were looking for, the magic language they wanted. And it wasn't really that big of a deal, but it did seem fairly arbitrary. Why are you doing this? And would they do this to another bigger company? And I think the answer to that is probably no. You get into the complaint, hey, you're only concerned about apps that make you money. To some extent, that's undoubtedly true. A company in the business of making money for its shareholders and its investors is going to favor the policies and procedures for the developers and the app creators that make them the most money. That in and of itself is not probably a problem in the law. Where it becomes a problem is when you've got the kind of accusations that Apple is doing these things against parties that it thinks are competitive with it specifically in this market of apps 
and are doing it solely to retain the power in that market. And that's where you've got better arguments. It's where you've got better arguments with xCloud and NVIDIA and GeForce Now, where you look at it and you say, Apple, you make a lot of money from games. Aren't you being harder on games than you are on other apps because you want to protect that because you are anti-competitive by its nature? And you've got a better argument than just Fortnite, just the app store, just in-app payment processing. But this is the direction that Epic's gone down. I think it's effective. It's just something that I think is probably pretty easily countered by Apple when and if it comes to it. Lawyer notes that Apple doesn't permit stores in the app store like Epic Game Store. Lawyer brings up Apple Arcade, Apple's own gaming app. Fisher breaks in. No, Apple Arcade is a feature of the App Store and a game subscription service. It's not a separate app. It's a little bit more like Game Pass. You have access for a set amount of money to a number of games that you can download and play uh, so long as they are a part of the service. And then when they aren't a part of the service, you can't play them anymore. Uh, But you're not actually buying the games separately. Lightly paraphrased, you don't think the Apple Arcade that has games in it competes with other stores that have games in them? Well, when you word it like that, yes, Fisher supposes it does. But again, This is pretty easily distinguished. I don't think that Epic actually makes tremendous inroads with Apple Arcade because Apple Arcade, while Apple has a vested interest in selling that subscription and could potentially get into a fight about something like a Game Pass that's doing the same thing, isn't really facing a Game Pass that's doing the same thing. This isn't a storefront. And we're going to see with another major game or not game, depending on where you're coming from, especially if you're on Apple's side, that this argument comes up again that you are treating Epic Game Store specifically differently because you allow things like your own subscription service. And I think they are pretty easily distinguishable. But again, it's a pretty good inroad to say, Apple, you're treating your stuff better. You're treating the stuff that you're most interested in, you're most invested in better than those third-party apps. And I can start to frame or at least color in a picture for the judge that says you're doing this deliberately and on an anti-competitive basis. PayPal, Amazon Pay, Braintree, get mentioned alongside credit card companies. Lawyer asks if Apple has ever done any studies about any security issues if a gaming company were to use a non-Apple processing method. I'm not familiar with any study like that. No. Again, if we're to believe Apple on this, and it's pretty bad if they were to lie about this directly in a court of law, they clearly aren't doing formal studies on things that they don't want to have come up in litigation. They, of course, have information on these various things. They are watching various bits of this about whether it's working for their app store, their iOS, their overall business model, but they aren't making these formal studies about things like security issues. Now, Epic's trying to point out that if you haven't studied whether or not third-party payment processors create security issues, how can you claim that only using in-app payment processing results in better security. And it's a good point. Apple can go around the horn a little bit and say, well, we can point out that the iOS is a much more secure environment than Android. We can point out that Mr. Sweeney on your side, actually when asked about why he uses an iPhone, was asked about whether it was because of privacy and security concerns. And he said, among other reasons, yes. We can point out these various things and say, we don't have to do a study on it because we've already established that whatever it is we are doing, is effective in the market, which may or may not be good enough for the court, but it is at least somewhat of an effective takedown of an argument like this. Epic is basically contrasting this with Apple's statement that third-party processing would create a security hazard. Has there been any study comparing Apple's payment service to any third-party competitor? No, et cetera, et cetera. Developers have expressed directly to you that they think the 30% commission is too high. Some apps sell person-to-person experiences rather than digital ones, and those can use different payment processing methods. Lawyer asks, is there any evidence that those are less safe and secure? Fisher hasn't seen any studies, which leads us to, have you ever heard of a plan to change how the app store operates 
to lock users and developers into the App Store ecosystem? No, Fisher answers, or Fisher says here as described in this tweet. And this is important. Epic, at the start of their opening statements, have basically framed all of what Apple has done really since the inception of the App Store and their iOS business model as building up a very sticky, locked-in environment for both customers and developers in a way that increases and retains monopoly power in an illegal fashion for antitrust law purposes, that they had this plan to lock in. Fisher doesn't really think that's in fact the case. Fisher repeats that the App Store tries hard to attract developers and consumers, and he's not sure how he'd execute such a plan if it existed. Fisher asked how they find apps to feature. My editorial team really needs to be on top of what developers are working on. Mentions web portal where developers of all shapes and sizes can contact the editorial team. As a matter of fact, the app that I wound up making years and years ago wound up being an app of the week, I think. Um, And we never knew how that happened. We didn't get in touch with Apple Editorial. We don't know what their process is. Pretty big black box and certainly a black box that changes the fortunes of applications. And so I think it's worthwhile to note that regardless of whether you think Apple is acting legally or illegally, it certainly can be frustrating to just send something over to Apple, have a fight about what you say in your description, and then maybe it becomes an app of the week, like one of our products was, and maybe it doesn't, like the other one wasn't, the two products we had before my brother and I had to separate and go, and he went to do big video games like Call of Duty. (laughs) And so you can see why there's frustration. You can see exactly why this happens, but Ultimately, Fisher says, what we think we are doing is providing a good product and service to attract developers and attract consumers. And this is one of those areas where Sherman and antitrust law in general really becomes muddy. Because I think we can all agree that a company that really just does a bang up job of attracting customers at great rates with great products and great services is going to win market share, potentially all of the market. You look at Steam and Steam won a lot of that market by people really liking it. But at some point, you can decide to change your policies after you have that market share, and it can be in an anti-competitive way. One of the issues, as we've talked about in this series, that Epic has in their case is that Apple didn't really change anything last fall, that Epic just kind of did their own thing. We'll see it talked about here by Mr. Fisher, but Epic did their own thing, and Apple wasn't expecting it at all because Epic didn't change anything. In fact, Fisher says Epic asked Apple about changing the guidelines to allow Fortnite in-app gifting. For example, Epic apparently made a number of requests to change things, to expedite the review, etc. Apple decided to update the guidelines and change them for all developers. When we make a change, we want to make a change that would apply equally to all developers. To which Nick Stat over at Protocol, we're going to bring in a couple of his tweets here. He's another individual journalist that is doing a lot of live tweeting of this case. I recommend checking him out as well. Says... That does not seem to track with a lot of the deals Apple has cut with Amazon and others. And to be entirely fair, that's correct. Apple has made deals with certain parties either to encourage them onto their storefront, to make them happy when they're otherwise sad, or to do other things that we probably don't know about here on the outside. But I also want to point out that despite this commentary from Mr. Stad, it's not really accurate. Fisher says, when we make a change, we want to make a change that applies equally to all developers. If Epic asks us to do something, we want to look at whether that applies to the guidelines and put it in the guidelines, if that makes sense, for us. That being said, if you've ever worked in corporate America, if you've ever worked on legal transactions or contracts, you know that a company that provides a product or service would love to have the other party use its form document, use its master service agreement, use its contract, use its terms of service, whatever it is for whatever product or service you're providing. And a lot of the time, the other party says, no, or 
I can sign this, but I need a side letter that gives me benefit X, Y, and Z. So Mr. Fisher here says, when we make a change, when we deal with something like this, we want it to apply equally. That is undoubtedly correct. He's not lying to the court. The other part of that statement might be, but a lot of the times people ask us for special sauce and we give it to them and we have side letters and Amazon gets a 15% benefit and all these various other things that can happen with these deals. So I don't know that it's a fair critique of what Apple's doing. I'm sure Apple would prefer to not have given Amazon a 15% deal, but they felt the value was important enough for their storefront when they apparently don't feel the same way about what Epic is doing. Now asking about Fisher's reaction to the hot fix, I was blindsided. And I want to take a step back here because I think that's fair. I think the court has said that what Epic did was surreptitious. It was hidden. It was sneaky. It was deceptive. What is one of the parts of this case that I still expect Epic to turn around on at some point is taking this notion that the folks at Apple were blindsided by Epic's fix and bringing it all the way home to their comments about how Apple isn't earning its security money by effectively saying we did it this way, not just to be sneaky, Your Honor, not just to be deceptive, but also to point out how easy it is to get a change in software that Apple can't tell and that they're lucky that Epic wasn't trying to do something more malicious because Apple isn't earning its money on the security side and we did it this way to make that point. It has been a surprise to me for nine months that part of Epic's argument is not that. Writ large, in bold, flashing lights, that this is the reason we did this. We didn't do it to be deceptive. You shouldn't hold us out that way. But I think Epic itself is somewhat blinded by the notion that they really did do it to be self-righteous and to do it because they believe in liberty and they were going to break this thing and these contracts should not apply to us when you really could have gone a different direction with your argument. Continuing on, we go back to Nick Stat here who says, Fisher's also asked a series of questions about exemptions to App Store rules. Do the App Store review guidelines apply equally to all developers? Yes, he says. Are the rules applied the same way to all developers? Yes. Do any developers receive a special break? No. And this starts to talk about the Amazon situation. I saw this kind of repeated around the internet as well. The actual rates of things, the money, the numbers, aren't what is being talked about here. What is being talked about here are the guidelines themselves, the rules about what can go in the store and what can't. And Apple has grappled with different business models and effectively changed their rules for certain of those models, especially in the physical delivery area. But what Fisher is testifying to here is this notion that on their base, in generality, the rules apply to everybody. And then for rates and pricing and things like that, we change it up there. You don't have to believe him. Uh, and certainly I think a number of you on the internet don't believe him, but I wanted to make clear that he isn't talking about something like Amazon getting a 15% break. That's a rate issue. That isn't whether or not Amazon can actually have a specific app that does X, Y, or Z or introduces Trojan horse code or all these various other things that they have in pages and pages and pages of app review guidelines. Continuing, on in-app purchases, IAP in its simplest form is a way to sell digital content within an app, but actually it's a lot more complicated than that. It enables the safe and frictionless delivery of digital goods from a developer to a user, allows things like parental controls. And he says he and others are guilty of conflating IAP with Apple's commission. They're two separate things. IAP being the in-app payment processing 
portion and the commission being the 30% that you get from sales of your games on the app store. So when he talks about this, he's trying to now establish the opposite of what Epic was trying to establish, that it's not Stripe, it's not PayPal, it's not a payment processor. It is part and parcel to an overall holistic function of being a part of the app store. And I do think they have a fairly good argument about that insofar as it's never been separated. IAP's always been a mandate for being in the App Store. It's a fairly normal mandate for most stores really before. Epic Game Store tried to introduce these different payment mechanisms. Most of them are run by the platform holder. And even though you've got Epic arguments, as we've seen in this testimony, about whether or not they've studied a third-party payment provider and whether that creates a security issue, there is no question that facially, knowing what the code is, knowing how it operates, operating it yourself and having your people in-house going over things like collecting payment information and the delivery of digital goods is safer from a knowledge perspective than having that outsourced to a black box that is owned and controlled and run and coded by a third party. And there really isn't anybody that I think would disagree with that. You know what you know, you don't know what you don't know. Doesn't mean that PayPal is going to suddenly steal everybody's money, but it does mean that you don't know what they do and it's not in your control. And that in terms of control and making sure everything is secure is obviously less secure from your perspective than something else. Also referencing the thread about Hulu being part of a whitelist for Apple. We are now holding for a second while they sort through some binders. And then Nick Stott actually has a highlight of this document where they say Hulu is a part of whitelisted developers with access to subscription cancel refund API back in 2015. They were using this to support instant upgrade using a two-family setup before we had subscription upgrade downgrade capabilities built in. Uh, And so Hulu has this extra access to an API because Hulu as a major company is on an Apple whitelist and Apple feels they don't have to worry about them as much. And the question is, is whether that is something that is illegal in and of itself. Again, the overall prospect is not that you have to treat everybody evenly, but if you're on Apple, that you can't treat things that are specifically competitive with your offerings worse than those that aren't. And so that's one of the kind of constant refrains here. Hulu being on the whitelist doesn't surprise me. The really big companies being on the whitelist doesn't surprise me. You know what company's not going to be on the whitelist after this is all over is Epic, uh, who, of course, put that hot fix in to change how their software works underneath Apple's nose. And that's the end of Fisher's testimony. Epic is now calling Tristan Kuzminska, Senior Director of Marketing at Apple. Describing how the app review process works, we have a combination of hourly and salaried employees. Standard day is 10 hours, lawyer says. Kaminska disagrees and says there are 100 viewers in Ireland with an eight-hour day. And then we go into an extremely long digression about the precise working conditions of App Store Review. See, we're skipping all of the actual trial minutia. These are long, kind of drawn-out conversations. And again, I thank the journalists here for helping make them just a little bit shorter for us. Describing app being hidden for being a store within a store, but it's been live since 2015. So it was on the store for about three years before the executive board ruling. You're not aware of any specific security issues that had occurred with Tribe, this particular hidden store within a store, when it was in the store. I'm not aware of any issue outside this particular guideline issue, Kuzminska says, referring to an unspecified guideline. Lawyer repeats the question for all stores within stores. Any issues? I do recall some. I recall safety and security issues. And that unspecified guideline, again, the Apple guidelines are not terribly well written. I don't love the Apple terms of service, which is probably no surprise to you if you know how I read terms of service regularly here in virtual legality. But they do say for business models, you're allowed to display your own apps for purchase or promotion within your app, provided the app is not merely a catalog, but you're not allowed to create an interface for displaying third-party apps to the app store or as a general interest collection. You're not allowed to make things look like an app store, which is what Epic Game Store does. 
but it's also what another product might do. Does Roblox follow our guidelines? And yes, make fun of my pronunciations. Leave that comment to the video. I do not play it, but I like that pronunciation. Reviewer says they'll investigate potential store within store violation, comes back with results. I was surprised this was approved by the executive board, Kaminska wrote when it was approved. At this time, I only had the context of this email though, not knowledge of Roblox itself. What does this app do? The judge asks. Roblox is an app where users create a profile, hang out with their friends, and they can join in these experiences that I would look at as content. Kazminska, if you think of a game or app, games are incredibly dynamic. Games have a beginning and end. There's a challenge in place. I look at the experiences that are in Roblox, similar to the experiences in Minecraft, which are also not games, apparently, says Robertson in editorial. But understand what Epic is trying to achieve here. You are treating something differently than us for reasons that aren't altogether clear, except you think that Epic is a competitor and we're going to do bad things to you. The Epic Game Store should be allowed because something like Roblox is. That doesn't ring as true to me as it does to some other folks on the internet. If you go and you look at how Roblox describes itself in places like the Microsoft Store, Roblox is the ultimate virtual universe that lets you play, create, and be anything you can imagine, join millions of players, and discover an infinite variety of immersive worlds created by a global community. And I don't think realistically, regardless of whether you spend money or virtual coins or whatever on Roblox experiences, that Roblox in and of itself represents an app store. If you go and you look at the guidelines and they're talking about actually making something that looks similar to the app store, a general interest collection, while still allowing you to make ads for everything that is yours, provided it's not a mere catalog, which nobody would accuse Roblox of being because you can do things in it, then that's going to be okay versus an Epic Game Store or another game store that were to pop on and essentially just be another app store on the iOS it's kind of lost in this discussion of whether or not Roblox plays games or experiences because it's not about that to me. And testimony sometimes has this happen. You don't see games really referenced separately in the guidelines. You're talking about apps. Uh, And Roblox runs on the 3D nature of Roblox and inside of Roblox. You get these other experiences. And the notion isn't that Minecraft isn't games. The notion is, is that A different mode in Minecraft, a different server, a different world isn't a different game. It might be a new experience, but it's the same game. It's Minecraft. It's not Minecraft Plus. It's not anything we would think about needing another app. Uh, And so it's not an app store. Otherwise, you start to get into really dicey conversations about, okay, what about modes? Is a mode of a game a different game now? How about Fortnite? If you can play Fortnite and do various other things and have various other modes and various other strategies and various other concerts and whatever you think of in Fortnite, is that already a store within a store? That's not a direction Epic wants to go down. So while I think a lot of the internet was interested in this Roblox conversation, I don't really see it as very useful to Epic or to Apple, really. Just to be clear, as Ms. Robertson says, the argument here is that experiences inside Roblox are not games because otherwise Roblox could be arguably similar to the Epic Game Store in being a store inside the App Store. And I think that it's pretty easy, again, to distinguish Roblox from a storefront that would sell games that would otherwise be accessed by separate apps, by third parties, uh, and uh, not by what amounts to Roblox itself within their own environment. But if you disagree, you know, leave the comments. I'm always happy to have that conversation. And now as we finish up this already almost hour-long video, we're talking about potential review mistakes. Mentioning Tribe, are there occasions on which there are mistakes in the app review process? It's a human process. We do make mistakes, but we certainly try to rectify those mistakes when we learn of them. I think there's a large variety of different types of mistakes. Here, it's that the app was in violation for a while without Apple catching it. And if Apple had caught Tribe when it was first put up, it would have been a better experience for everyone. 
hey, we wish we would have caught it. We think that our ecosystem and environment would have been better. But where Epic somewhat trips up here is that you don't have to be perfect. The rule of reason, whether or not Apple is monopolistic for wanting to engage in security practices, does not require perfection. The law doesn't require perfection on business cases. We've already talked about the business judgment rule. It doesn't even require you to be right as long as you've got a reason for the actions that you're taking. The rule of reason, if you haven't watched this entire series in Virtual Legality, and I don't blame you, effectively burden shifts on a monopoly restraint of trade type claim under antitrust laws in the United States and says, okay, well, we think that you're acting anti-competitively. And then the company that is taking whatever the action is can say, no, no, we have this business justification for doing that. And our business justification is we want to increase security and we want to do all these other various things that Apple has said really from the start. And then Epic gets a chance to come back and say, well, you could accomplish those things in a less anti-competitive manner. And so you get into this back and forth but it never requires you to be perfect. The law says, hey, if you've got a business reason to think that this helps your security, and if you've got at least some evidence that it does, you don't have to have caught everything. Uh, and Epic seems to continue to get caught in this trap of trying to establish that Apple isn't perfect. And I think even Apple would admit, as they do here, that no, they're not perfect. They wish they were. They wish they were catching more stuff. That doesn't make them a monopolist. And it also doesn't make the value of their process zero. Epic has more work to do there. But overall, I think it was a pretty good day for them, a pretty strong day, even if they might have irritated the judge with references to Project Liberty and or redacted documents and trying to issue them into evidence when the judge didn't want it. So that's it. The end of day four. Thank you again to Ms. Robertson, Mr. Stott, all the various journalists that are talking about these things. I couldn't do it without the live tweets. If you enjoy these conversations about Epic versus Apple, we're having tremendous amount of growth here on the channel during this trial, and I thank you for it. Please consider supporting us. We can't do it without you. We've got a Patreon. Please check it out. We've got Streamlabs tips if you prefer that method with PayPal or what have you. We've got a store with awesome sweatshirts and shirts and a mug, and if none of that appeals to you, the best possible thing you can do, subscribe, ring the bell, upvotes, even downvotes. Love those downvotes, and telling your friends that we're having this conversation in this space. Every little bit helps. If you watch this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.